HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware. Their stainless steel cookware uses vapor technology to cook better tasting, more nutritional food. To learn more and receive 20% off, click their logo on our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Did you ever think about the evolution of the American beverage industry? We'll be drinking history today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on heritageradionetwork.org. And I just wanted to remind all of our listeners that Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported and donor-sponsored radio network. So in order to keep all of our programs going, and we hope that you enjoy them and want to keep them going, go to the homepage and click on Donate. Any amount will help, and we appreciate your support. Well, the American beverage industry is, you know, I never really stopped to think about it. it. It's, you think about from water to whiskey and Kool-Aid to Red Bull, uh, Americans have been industrializing drinks for as long as one can imagine. And, of course, somebody else picked up on that as well, someone who uh, writes a lot about American food history, and that's Andy Smith, Andrew F. Smith. Andy teaches food history at the New School in New York City, and he is an engaging educator as well as a generous educator, sharing his knowledge and discoveries with authors, other authors in radio and TV. You've probably seen him on a lot of the TV food history shows. He's the founder of the Edible Series Talks at the Roger Smith Hotel and the Food Writers Conference and the Cookbook Conference here in New York City, which is now in its second year, and it's about to take place in February. Andy is the author or editor of 23 books and counting as he's shaking his head. His newest book, which I am very excited to talk about today, is called Drinking History. And you can say drinking history or drinking history. 
It's all about beverages, any way you look at it. And um, welcome, Andy. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> uh, this, I see, as we talked a little bit before the show, is such a natural companion to your eating history, which it, came out a couple of years ago. It really started off as three chapters in eating history, and I ended up with 33 chapters, and I decided uh, 30 sounded better than, and I, really that there were other beverages that, histories that I needed to incorporate in. So I decided to remove those three chapters on beverages and put it into a companion volume. So this well, now is the companion volume to it, eating history. It really is true. I was I mentioned to Andy before this at the top of the show that I really enjoyed how this reads. It flows. You know, Andy, I think it's the the chronology of the book. You really it does it flows in such a, a, a sensible chronological pattern. I, I I loved writing it, uh, and it was a great. Uh, I mean, I had to sample everything I was writing about. Oh, oh okay. And, and that's of course a tax deduction. Uh, so it worked out very nicely. And did you have to go through prohibition as well? <laughs> um, I've been there. I've been done that. So um, yeah. Well, I have to say that yeah. Initially, the the title was a little misleading to me. Um, drinking well, history. Do you think it was alcoholic? Is I that, thought, everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. Really. I, drinking history. It just sort of it it brought up. Um, thoughts of you know history of cocktails or something yeah. you know and and that's and then all of a sudden I open it and I start to read and I go oh. that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to write this book because everybody thinks of drinking and think alcoholic but and and when there are really wonderful books on coffee and really wonderful books on history of beer and history of wine but no book ever pulls them all together and to me they're all interrelated and they're interconnected and that's what I tried to get at in drinking yeah. history well and this you keep it to um, American drinking history, starting with the colonialization of, of that's you know, America. That's the colonial period. But we can back up and, and you do give a little background. I mean, first of all, we know that human beings evolved and settled and formed cities around water because we need water. Well, I only started 400 million years ago. so yeah. and, and, and life begins in water. It is so obvious, and I never thought about it before until I started thinking about the importance of water. But all life forms that we know of have water in them. And humans, of course, are 55 to 75% water, which I guess I knew, but I'd never really put into perspective. And uh, we need to replace that water every every three days. And if we don't take in water every three days, we die. So water is even more important in a way than food. Food, you can survive for weeks, but water you need immediately. So the question is, how do human beings drink water? And there are thousands of ways that human beings, including Americans, have decided to flavor their water. And to me, I thought that was an interesting story. And I, I wanted to begin at the beginning. and But then Focus on America. Mm -hmm. Well, and you did um, mention that people for for millennia have been flavoring the waters, as you say. Yes. What? How? Bark, what uh, leaves, roots. I mean, you name it. There is no group that just drank straight water. If they could add a flavoring to it, they did. And so, whatever um, they would be interested in consuming, they did. So, if they consume fish, they would consume it with water. Well, it ends up kind of a soup, but in the end, they they consume water. So, there are lots of ways in which we consume that. Well, I was really um, my eyes were <laughs> opened when I was reading some history years ago about um, colonial period, pre-colonial period, and how everyone drank some form of alcoholic beverage. I mean, it just happened, you know, a fermented thing, even children. But take us through a little bit about how, from 
water and onward. That was a, a surprise, too, for me, because America had tremendous resources for water, particularly in New England and the Middle States. Um, in the South, there were problems on, on water. But as a whole, they had really great water. And so the question was, why did they immediately give up the water, which was the excuse, at least in England, of having bad water and therefore needing to add alcohol to it in order to make it more antiseptic so that it would be more healthy? But that wasn't the need here at all. But people immediately, as soon as they could make alcohol, they did. And they made it in every way that you can think of and every product that you can think of. So whatever was available, they made it. So if you had a spruce tree, you made spruce beer out of it. If you had corn, you made corn liquor. I mean, a thousand different ways that you could make it. So it really started off as Europeans coming in wanting to duplicate what beverages they consumed in Europe. And for English and for Dutch, for instance, it was beer. And uh, for what they and barley was one of the first introductions into um, the colonial America, as well as well as hops. And for whatever reason, simply due to um, whether the hops were the not right, not the right variety, or the barley didn't work out, or whether they didn't have the professionalization that you needed, but the problem was the beer did not work in the new world. And every description of it, from local to visitors coming in, saying it really tasted bad. <laughs> so they really needed to flow to other alcoholic beverages. And uh, cider, which I had expected, but I didn't realize how important that was in colonial period of time. Applejack and uh, so many other products, particularly in New England and the Middle States, but also in the southern states because it would be shipped from New England elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So um, you had a wide variety of other products. Um, uh, you had persimmon beer, and you had—I mean, you name—you name the product. They would add—they would add uh, flavorings to it and try to come up with something alcoholic. Now, a lot of people say, "Well, that's because the the sanitation." system was not well worked out but they went to alcohol even before they had problems yes. with dirty water particularly in new england there was no there was not a problem at all in colonial times or even early federalist period for water resources they were just tremendous and they were available everywhere i mean you had flowing streams all over the place in the south you in particularly the tidewater areas you did have problems with water and so they had a little more they had a little more justification for going to alcoholic beverages but then even there if you start looking at it what surprised me about the colonial period, and I've written on the colonial period, I've studied the colonial period, I've taught the colonial period, was the diversity of alcoholic beverages that were there. I mean, you know, people drank from the time that they got up in the morning until the time that they went to bed, and it wasn't just males doing that. It was also females, and it was also children. Children, that surprised me. Right. And, uh, I mean, all the descriptions were that children from the earliest days on would be given ciderkin, which is a, a lighter alcoholic uh, version of, of hard cider. Mm -hmm. and it was uh, a surprise to me. I hadn't expected that. But the, but the American alcoholic consumption actually increases until 1830. 1830 is the largest amount of alcohol consumed on a per capita basis in America, uh, including today. Into, so, into, yeah, yeah, yeah. so people today. think that today we're drinking a lot of alcohol, and the answer is uh, not as much as we would have, not, not as much as you, you would have in uh, earlier American times. No, today if you drink it for breakfast, you're suspect. But <laughs> well, but, yeah, but in would, those days, they would, they would have it uh, even at, at They breakfast. had eye openers. I mean, and then the yeah. names of the products, many of which we don't really know the total contents for, but uh, they're, they're, I, I, I counted about three or 4,000 names of products like eye opener, fog cutter. I mean, all these names <laughs> that, that people uh, at least created for consuming a beverage. And they considered this medicinal, incidentally. So mm. um, I just want you to know, I, I too have considered it medicinal on occasion, well. but uh, not every morning. <laughs> what I did, I, um, the title of the book, I 
did not give the full title um, because it's drinking history, and then it is 15 turning points to the in the making of American beverages. Now, these turning points, you really do, you narrowed it down to 15. I don't know how you kept it at 15, but that was... There were some that I debated very, very clearly, and some that I regretted I couldn't I, I knew I needed to do something but couldn't find the right event to describe it. So today, for instance, the um, most commonly consumed uh, spirit happens to be vodka. I mentioned vodka in there. I have a section on it. But mm-hmm. I, I I never figured out the right turning point to say, where did America – no American consumed vodka in the United States prior to – um, 1933, and and even then it was a very minor beverage, and and yet it explodes after that. So. Well, you know, I think gin's back on the uptake, so you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, all of the, uh, uh, they're all go through phases, and of course, um, you know, the 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 gin houses of uh, early colonial America right. were were what set off uh, the Puritan clergy to begin with about being really upset and creating first the temperance movement and then prohibition. Well, without. Being a spoiler and giving away you, you know everything it. in the it's book, okay. I, I kind of take. I want you to take us through some of those fifteen points, but briefly, you know, touch on the first. We have the colonial diversity. Okay, we went. I started this. with that because I thought that was really where America begins in this beverage history. I mean, it's this huge diversity of beverages, and then um, from there, uh, one of the first introductions happens to be rum, which. I guess from my grade school American history class, I remembered rum and slavery and all that sort of thing. But right. I never realized how important rum was to the American Revolution. And that connection I hadn't made until I started writing the section. But um, obviously, um, New Englanders didn't have the soil like you did in the South or like you did in the middle uh, colonies to um, have an agricultural um, system that would financially be viable. So. They had to shift to other things, and so some of them went into seafaring, and and some went into logging, uh, but others went into making rum, and, and so they got it from the Caribbean. And the control that the uh, plantation owners in Barbados and in other British colonies had over the British Parliament was something that I was generally aware of but didn't realize how important that was. As soon as they required that all American uh, North Americans had to buy their uh, molasses from the British Isles, then their price went dramatically up. And so you had French colonies there, and France uh, declined to permit rum making or importation into France because of the wine industry that's there. So you have all of these French colonies that are producing sugar, and they got this molasses all over the place, and they're just dumping it into the ocean. And so really cheap. And so Americans started going in and getting this cheap um, molasses illegally. And, and you, the smuggling starts off in eighteen in 1730, um, and it continues for almost 30 years. And it's only when the British try to impose enforcement on it that you then then the columns become very upset about this huh. so um, well and you get you give explanation for a lot of those phrases that we've heard for years like uh, taxation without res- representation taxation yes. well, without it, representation it, it right. was really smuggling uh, w- without taxation was, <laughs> was, was, was was what the primary principle was but that doesn't sound good you can't start a revolution with that and you certainly can't put that in an elementary t- uh, textbook so that's not what we learned but that is the major cause of 
the friction that begins between England and the United States after the French and Indian War. And Rum, Romanism and rebellion, well, we get well, the that Rum will, and rebellion. That will be later on, but, yeah. uh, but the fascinating thing at that point is Americans weren't drinking rum at that point. Hmm. So it was just this nice alliteration that a minister got up uh, that says, oh yeah, let's add all these things together, um, and it will end in, um, in, in, in the election of a, of a Democratic president. So uh, after the American Civil War, it was, uh, that in itself created enough anger among Italians and um, and other uh, Catholics that have immigrated into America. So we go through rum playing an important role in our in our independence, and then on to the tea parties and tea. We were still very much a tea drinking society. Yes, coffee was there, but it simply wasn't an important part of American uh, society. And and a tea, what again a surprise for me was relatively simple. It was a female beverage from the beginning, and mm. in many ways, it's not. It's Still is. Uh, there's certainly lots of males that drink tea, and right. females that drink coffee, but there was this division, and women uh, could get together over a tea clutch, and they could talk to each other. And this was the equivalent of men going into the tavern or later to the saloon. So men had a social place to meet and talk, and women did too, and it was virtually over tea. Mm-hmm. So you had this whole tea movement that will begin, that will start, of course, um, in colonial America. And then you have this big evidence of tea being thrown into the harbor in Boston, which gets all the news. But also in, in six other uh, colonial cities, you had similar types of events that happened. And they never got the news because they weren't the first one. And the British punished the Bostonians, not not the New Yorkers, who also threw tea into the New York Harbor. Hmm. So uh, I, I thought that was interesting. So t- tea, in the end, sounds a lot better to have a revolution about or taxation than it does to have rum and slavery and molasses and that sort of thing. So, and, um, it's, so that's part of what leads to the American Revolution. But then the surprise, another surprise to me, was being beginning in the 1820s and 1830s, we had medical professionals that were arguing against the consumption of tea and coffee uh, because of this caffeine. caffeine and it was right. a drug, and it was horrible. And, and in a sense, that's, that trend has remained with us. It's, uh, it com- comes and goes. It, it comes yeah. and goes. Yeah. And, and those perennial things, it's so surprising to me how frequently in history, historical times you have that come up as an argument, then it fades away, then it comes back again. Hmm. And we get back to... We get back to the hard drinks again. Cider, we have this big boom in cider um, uh, again before. And then cider disappears. And uh, and hard cider does. And and my question was, why was that the case? In part, it was uh, you had uh, cheaper more alcoholic beverages like rum come on and then whiskey. And, of course, as soon as whiskey hits America, rum phases out simply because you don't have to import molasses from the Caribbean. You can make it here with virtually anything. Gives more importance to Johnny Appleseed, right? Uh, Well, Johnny Appleseed's an interesting person um, who uh, is, of course, a teetotaler. I mean, he doesn't believe in alcoholic consumption at all. But here he is planting apple trees. And the only reason why anyone would plant the apple trees that he did would be to make apple cider because the apples that that were coming out of those trees were not were not consumable they were mm-hmm. very very uh, bitter and they were not and they were very small and they were not something that you would want to bite they're not a delicious apple that you would like to bite into <laughs> so um, so really he's promote he in many ways promoted um, hard, hard cider production particularly in the midwest by his by his actions well kind of skipped over a step there and um, right before we go to break I want to hear a little bit about that and that's you give an interesting name to something we all know well. You call 
tarantula juice. Oh, I love tarantula juice. Haven't, have, would, wouldn't you ever think of having a little tarantula juice with a little whiskey in it? I mean, come on, that would really make a zinger at uh, the tell end. Tell us where this comes from. <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's a Western uh, saloon product that comes online and that everybody falls in love with the name tarantula juice. Oh, that sounds horrible. Dangerous. And dangerous, yeah. and let's give it a shot, you know. And so, um, but all those names, uh, I started to collect names of just cocktails and, and beverage combinations on it. I stopped at about 15,000. It was a small, small number compared to what number is out there. I ask a few of those who write extensively about the history of cocktails, how, how many cocktails are there really? And they said, well, uh, we only know of about 50,000, but there's lots of ones we don't know about. So, oh, my goodness. So you look at these, whether they're really different or not is another issue, but each each saloon or bartender would create their own products and their goal in life was not to tell anybody what they consisted of simply because somebody else could make it then. Yeah. So they were really trade secrets and um, and that was another, I should have expected that, but uh, each each bartender would have their own formula to make things and they wouldn't really pass it on to other people. And that, that all changes um, in 1861 when you begin to have a uh, publication of bartenders with with books about trying to right. stabilize. On comes what, what Jerry Thomas, with. right? And Jerry Thomas right. comes on, and uh, and then you have products that become the the definition for them. Then becomes um, relatively clear because once you got it in writing, then people can say, "Well, a martini's got to include gin, and it's got to include vermouth, or it doesn't, depending on how you define it." Well, whiskey, cider, and then they they start to perfect growing the hops and and making beer. We're going to hear more about a lot of these beverages when we come back from our break. You're listening to Home of Emptiness by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by AmeriCraft. AmeriCraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. AmeriCraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. AmeriCraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com. Every Wednesday at noon, Dorothy Can Hamilton, founder and CEO of the International Culinary Center, interviews the top chefs in the world on Chef Story. Hear from chefs like Christina Tosi. I'm going to be the best pastry cook this restaurant's ever seen. Francis Malman. Cooking with fires, it's very feminine, it's very fragile. And Jacques Pepin. I was invited to work at the White House for John Kennedy. Learn how the greats become great. 
every Wednesday at 12 p.m. on Chef Story at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, welcome back to A Taste of the Past. I'm sitting here with my friend Andy Smith talking about drinking. But drinking in America through history, drinking a little bit of everything, according to this book. Andy, in, you cover the period of time from cl- the colonial period up through the present. It, what is there something in your research that really surprised you about the beverage industry or drinks and, and America's habits? I've, I've written about uh, beverages before, but th- I must admit there is no chapter that didn't surprise me about something, something I had not expected and that um, I was absolutely fascinated by, which 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 is one of the reasons why you can continue writing if you're fascinated by something. Whoa, what, what, how, how did this happen? I think I was most fascinated by Prohibition, mm-hmm. uh, the period of time. I, of course, I saw Elliot Ness on television, and I know about Al Capone, and, and I know about all the people fighting each other and doing all the murders and things of that sort. But I wasn't aware of how important uh, Prohibition was uh, in, 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 in cities in particular. And I didn't realize that it was... Um, a product of uh, a, a, the progressive movement, a, and the progressive movement will start off and will will uh, argue for um, uh, end of slavery. It will argue for women's rights and women's suffrage. It will argue for direct election of of senators. It will argue for the income tax. Uh, believe it or not, all because um, they're also supporting prohibition. And at that time, alcoholic beverages uh, provided more than fifty uh, percent of the federal budget was excise taxes. On on uh, alcohol. Um, so in order to, if you get rid of this, you have to have a source of income. And so income tax is one of the things that they argue for. But they're also arguing for, uh, in this case, prohibition. And that surprised me. I never associated that with a pure food movement, with all the other progressive movements that were going along. So it's really an association. The, these groups were very in favor of women voting, incidentally, because they knew that if women voted, they would vote out alcohol. And so you look at these connections on this and and you say, that's fascinating. Um, so I think that was um, a part of um, you know the, the interest in it, how it came about. Uh, it was the first successful group of a uh, single interest group that lines together and says, this is the only criteria that we are going to use about whether we're going to support a candidate or not. Reminds me very much of, mm-hmm. of the Tea Party mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. I was just going to bring that, that up. <laughs> that doesn't really, in theory, doesn't really care whether you're Democrat or Republican, only if you support this way. If you agree with them, then they will support you. And if you don't agree with them, they will oppose you. And so that is exactly what um, 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 the um, you know the, the movement did, and it was extremely successful. And I think that was another surprise: how a in- single interest group uh, could could in- not just pass legislation in cities and in counties and in states um, and in the federal government, but actually get an amendment passed to the U.S. Constitution. Something that was very rare prior to the time that um, you have the passage of the Eighteenth Amendment. It really yeah, that. I have to say, struck me as well. And also about the Prohibition movement and the passing of the Volstead Act, what surprised me was how this all coincided with our initial involvement in the First World War. Yes, and I guess that was another part to this. I, I did not expect that this was really an outcome of the of World War One. in which case you had two things. You had German uh, brewers, for instance, uh, who, and many of them at the 
beginning of the war, uh, 1914, when the United States was not in the war, supported Germany. Uh, and so you had a lot of them moving. And when the United States enters the war in 1917, now they're declared enemies. Uh, and even though they no longer supported Germany after the United States entered the war, it's still this patriotic fervor that's there. And in part of that, you needed to reserve wheat um, in order to be able to supply our one million man army plus Feed our allies. Yeah. And, um, and that means you have much less wheat avail grain available for producing hard liquor. So you pass during the war, the, the federal government stopped uh, permitting alcohol to be produced except for medicinal and industrial purposes. So they really had stopped alcohol consumption at that point. And likewise, they started on beer and tried to lower the alcoholic content of right. beer in order to increase it. So these things are happening well before the Volstead Act and well before the 18th Amendment. So, well, weren't some, during Pro Prohibition, weren't some immigrant groups allowed a certain a certain allotment of their beer or wine? Uh, during Prohibition, uh, certain uh, religious groups were allowed certain beverages, and that was another surprise when it gets into Prohibition. So if you were Jewish, it was okay uh, to have a, a little wine for, for religious purposes only. So a large number of people, including a large number of African Americans, became Jewish uh, and, <laughs> and, and were therefore drinking medicinal wine, on, on, excuse me, were drinking uh, holy wine on, on, a, on, a, on particular uh, numerous occasions, I'll phrase it that way. And likewise, um, Catholics were permitted wine because of the Mass and because of religious ceremonies and things of that sort. So you, you really had permission to consume wine under certain circumstances. So America became very holy during <laughs> Prohibition, and that's part of it. And by the way, also, uh, you could have... Uh, you could issue um, uh, the, the you know if you're a doctor or a medical professional you could issue um, a permit to to have a uh, patient consume alcohol so people got a lot of good visibility to their doctors and got lots of permits to do this and then of course industrial alcohol was permitted um, and so you have massive increases in industrial alcohol although the uses weren't there but then it would be siphoned off into uh, speakeasies and things so that's kind like here we are come full circle again we have medicinal marijuana and you know and the, the fight to legalize that and you know it's 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 I mean, interesting how history repeats it well so. i thought that was an interesting uh connection but i didn't make that in the book but but, but, but <laughs> no on, i brought that up i i take full credit for that one but but on the beverage side to it uh, what was incredible was new york taking example new yorkers never believed that prohibition was for them. Uh, um, and the upper class drank from the beginning to the end. These are the upper classes were the ones that strongly supported prohibition because they believed it was for the lower classes who were drinking too much. <laughs> uh, and so the only people who really suffered in New York City, for instance, were those who drank beer. It happened to be Germans because you couldn't easily brew beer. You could easily make bathtub gin anywhere, but it is not easy to brew beer. So beer consumption literally dies during during Prohibition, and the breweries either go out of business or they convert to, to making uh, near beer or other um, other commercial beverages. Yeah, I mean, the numbers of speakeasies, and, you know, you want it, you can get it anywhere, kind of, you know, just it, continued. Prohibition goes, uh, well, the Volstead Act goes into effect uh, in uh, 1920, and within a matter of a year, 
Um, you had more speakeasies in New York City than you did have legal bars uh, prior to that time. Hmm. And what was interesting, a little later when The New Yorker uh, begins to be published, there, there are these huge articles on the speakeasies, the one on, uh, uh, you know, near so-and-so is really good for this, and it has really great food, and it's so got it this... So it was out in the open. It, it's was, out, it was totally out in the open, and um, uh, the police, only times that they raided um, establishments, either because they weren't being paid off by them or because they were required to because of a press uh, attack on them saying they weren't doing their job or or somebody irritated somebody else. I mean, it was all sorts of uh, different reasons. But you actually had more illegal establishments uh, for alcohol in, in Manhattan, for instance, uh, than you than you did uh, legal establishments prior to Prohibition. And that was something that I was surprised at. I was watching um, something which you did a little uh, consulting for, and we were on camera uh, the other night, 101 fast foods that changed the world yeah changed life or whatever saturday night something this yeah. yes, something um it was it was an interesting show fast paced you gotta you know, oh, count down that count down from 101 right. went you know really quickly um but something that surprised me was that when uh during prohibition is when applesauce production went up because they were no longer making hard cider and applesauce suddenly came well, up into into well, that was another part of the story. That I mean, there's, you know, as I get into this, as I got into it and started terms writing it, it, there was nothing that didn't surprise me about the prohibition period. But one of the things are people were making hard cider, obviously before uh, prohibition, and and they now can't do that legally. But you can make uh, by law, which was it went up and went through the court system, and the Supreme Court accepted it. You could make uh, sweet. Uh, apple juice, which is one of the places where apple juice then become a, an infant beverage that mm-hmm. you will know, start at that point. But you could easily convert it into hard apple cider. And that's and so this consumption of all apple products goes sky high in large part because uh, you can then easily convert that into alcoholic beverage or alcoholic products. So, uh, well, uh, now, and, let's, and let's talk about grape juice. Oh, grape juice is the same thing. And uh, again, the, oh, but this, that hit, this will that start off huge, earlier. Huge. Yeah. Well, you have no one uh, is commercializing grape juice, and the problem is, as soon as you squeeze the grapes, the, the you know that starts to ferment, and and you have to figure out a way to stop the fermentation. And most people didn't want to stop the fermentation; they want the fermentation <laughs> to continue. So um, you, you really had a problem for those that believed in temperance and, and didn't believe in alcoholic consumption. So you have the the, the recipes that begin um, in the eighteen seventies for Methodist ministers who are in favor of prohibition, and yet they have religious services and they want people to consume something. And so there's this big religious argument about, well, uh, what's really in the New Testament isn't wine that they're drinking. It's really unfermented uh, grape juice, and that's what they're... And so you look at these religious (laughs) arguments that are going on in order to defend their actions. So you have recipes then for unfermented wine um, that begin to appear in the 1870s and and will continue on. And And gave 
gave rise to one of the, the largest. Yeah, Welch's. Welch's grape juice starts off because of a minister who really is trying to provide an alternative to um, to alcohol, and as did many of the other products that we think of today as common beverages. Soda will 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 start off as a temperance beverage, and um, Coca Cola, which initially did have cocaine in it, would call itself the temperance beverage. And so, I mean, it was presenting itself as an and, and it really starts off as a drug, and it was to solve headaches. And I suspected that uh, initially cocaine and wine, which was the combination of the two would mm-hmm. solve a headache I, i've never had the yeah. two but um in combination but um, um all i can do is say um i, w- I was surprised that um, you had alternatives that came along and the problem with the temperance movement is males got together in bars that's where males socialized that's where they met that's where they engaged in political activity that's where they learned about what was going on in the world today bar of today is not what was like a bar of uh, pre-prohibition period and there's nothing if you believe in um, temperance if you don't believe in alcoholic consumption then where do you go mm-hmm. and so you had these all sorts of other um, efforts to create places where people could go and one of them of course is the tea house mainly for women but also some men and then you have the soda fountain soda fountain and the soda fountain will start off as a and really as a drugstore i mean it's druggists that are making this and for initially for purposes of medicinal um solutions and solving problems of one sort or another and then it will become much more public and then it becomes a place where teenagers hang out and uh 40,000 soda fountains in america during prohibition and that's where at least teenagers can go you didn't have to go to a speakeasy you could really go to a soda, soda fountain. fountain yeah and, and too bad they started to die out they soda disappeared they there, there's yeah. there's a few left here and there but yeah, they're yeah. well so you mentioned teenagers could go uh, to a soda fountain. It was a safe place for them to go and gather and, and hang out. But then in American industry, a big thing that, that uh, took root were youth beverage. They figured, oh, you know, we want to feed something healthy to the to the youth, give them things to drink. We had So sodas came about, and, of course, we milk became, you know, a beverage of choice for parents giving to children. But the youth beverages, you talk about youth thing, drinks for youths. Um, and, and that starts off, I mean, uh, that was hard, my hardest chapter to write and, mm-hmm. um, and because it was so diverse. But it really starts off as saying, if you believe um, uh, that children should not consume alcohol, and increasingly in the 19th century, this is a concern, and, and for very good reasons. So it's not just people um, are religious and therefore they're not going to – but people looking at this and saying it's not medicinally the right thing to do. And then there's lots of medicinal statistics or lots of statistics that, sh- that show that people who drank – got ill uh, and people who drank um, died early and and all sorts of other problems that work and things of that sort so there was lots of concern on this and the, the question is what do you feed children at the same time you have uh, the end of breastfeeding uh, or decrease of breastfeeding for women and um, and you need to feed them something and so milk will be the alternative and so but milk can only go so far until kids don't rebel against it but <laughs> that need flavorings added and so then you begin to add Bosco I don't know if you ever oh, had sure. Bosco oh, yeah. um, and um, and Hershey's and Nestle and all sorts of other things flavorings that are added so that kids will drink their milk there's even strawberry powder you strawberry Nesquik yes. you know, strawberry I, I I consumed that once. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
uh, but they had chocolate milk, and yeah. I, I do remember consuming but that. But at least at the base was milk, and then because because to go to Kool Aid, I mean, come on. Kool-Aid but, was huge, a huge business. But Kool-Aid starts during Prohibition. And so you look at this and saying they're providing an alternative. And it really starts off by um, an entrepreneur in Hastings, um, uh, Nebraska, who takes a look at Jell-O uh, and says, well, Jell-O is such a really great idea. You package it. You don't have to have a liquid out there. You don't have a bottle. You just put it into a normal package. And so he's looking and at And add that, a lot of sugar. And <laughs> add a lot of sugar to it. And, and therefore, why? Why don't we try to do something like that, not as a solid, but as a beverage? And so that starts off during Prohibition, and it sells extremely well. So you had this huge increase, and that was certainly the beverage of my youth in the in the fifties. You go any place that would be grape grape. Ju- we call it bug juice, but that yeah. was uh, what you would normally that consume. Big smiling frosty pitcher, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that part that adds to our culture too, and that's another part of the story. It's just that things that start off as promotional tools end up as popular uh, parts of our culture. That, Icons of our culture, yeah. yeah that, our, that, that right. aren't, um, you know, the history is, is uh, the connections are, never, are not always there to the early beverages that they had. But that was part of that story, and I thought that was great. Then, of course, to me, it was what my students were, were drinking today, uh, which was uh, the Red Bull. Red Bull, uh, and, right. it, and it's the highly caffeinated beverages. And, and I know some of them claim to have consumed the uh, caffeinated and alcoholic beverages, <laughs> uh, which um, are, from a, a medical standpoint, a disaster. Yeah. So. So um, I looked at that and said, well, then, if that's a disaster, what's the difference between people who are drinking at a bar and are told to drink coffee at the end in order to sober them up? And all the coffee will do is put the alcohol into your system much faster and will give you a rush. A uh, wide awake drunk. You know? But, yeah, but uh, you know, those are things that I, I really hadn't given a lot of consideration yeah, yeah. to. Well, we, we've actually come a long way in terms of, of choices of beverages. I mean, to take take everyone through, you know, we go through U.S. becomes a, a huge um, producer and consumer of wine, which um, we aren't, don't have time to go into that whole thing, but I think people can understand that. And then, of course, the health craze conscious of the the waters, all the health waters, and, and now we have smart water. We can drink water that make us smart. I mean, the you, industry, What you gave some statistics about what of, of the dollar amount, but it it is just amazing the the industry the entrepreneurs and the and the economist projections and and the amount of money that is made on on trying to satisfy our thirst and of course Starbucks being no slouch as well we I mean, got that coffee craze in there towards the end but but Starbucks really I mean, Starbucks is is one of my turning points, and uh, coffee is certainly in America, and it is America's most common beverage up until the 1960s when soda takes over yeah. as the as the number one beverage. Uh, but it's it's generic. I mean, I don't remember if you can. Uh, do you yeah. remember back in the 60s when you'd have a cup of coffee, and if you if it tasted like dishwater, that would be okay, uh, <laughs> and if it actually had a little flavor, that would be really great coffee. And Starbucks comes along and creates this premium coffee, and right. it. You think about this. This starts off in the 1980s, and within a period of 10 years, it becomes not only a national phenomenon, but a global phenomenon. That's right. And Starbucks today is the largest chain, um, uh, restaurant chain in in Europe. And you think about that and say, whoa, uh, that's an incredible story in itself. And that's why I I thought Howard Schultz and uh, and what he did with Starbucks, you know, take it to the level that he did. That's that's a fascinating story. 
is. It is, and uh, you have just you've managed to pack it all in here, and it's it's really interesting. A very interesting read. I really uh, I, I'm happy that you wrote this. I. I'm, you asked me about periods, and I said there were two, and one was yeah. prohibition. Yeah. The other is uh, that surprised you in your is, research is the bottled water bottled phenomenon. Water. Who would have ever thought, right? Uh, well, um, there, there, uh, you know, the cost of bottled water is anywhere from uh, like three or four thousand percent up to about ten thousand percent higher than the tap water, and for ninety nine percent of Americans, the water that you get out of your tap is perfectly fine. That's right. uh, and so the question was, why do people go for the the water that they do and my students that bring in not just Perrier but they bring in now volcanic water from Tahiti (laughs) and glacier water from Iceland and you're sitting there saying there is no health benefit in that as opposed to just drinking the water out of the fountain at the new school it's it's not that different and and look at what you're doing in order to the environment by producing all of all this the plastic, plastic and glass and that's thrown out and so several of them say oh no no we just bought one bottle and now we just fill it up with water from tap just to make us look good <laughs> and it's, it's a fashion it's, statement it's, right? a, it's an image statement, <laughs> yeah, image and, statement. Uh, and that's the same thing I, I run in prospect park and, and there's so many people that have their you know, their technical bottle of water and i just really wonder whether it's real stuff in there or whether they just put it in their tap water before they left to make them look good but 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 I guess that's what's the difference on on fashion statements. If well, wearing... it would make them a lot smarter to read your book than to drink smart. Oh, water, that's exactly sure. what I tell them. I said, "Oh, you're much smarter if you read this." So, <laughs> well, Andy, it has been a real pleasure as always. We could go on and on and on, but pizza awaits us from Roberta's restaurant. So, I was hoping you'd mention that. I think we're going to have to take a break from drinking and do some eating, and I hope you'll come back and and. Share more of your information. You've always got so much to to talk about. And I thank you for listening. And once again, Andy Smith's book is called Drinking History, 15 Turning Points in the Making of American Beverages. And you can find more information out about Andy at his website, andrewfsmith.com. And I hope you'll join me again here on A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.